Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Today's guest is Robert Kennedy Jr. We're going to get to him in a second. But first, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening. And we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com. And we'll read a few next time. Also, if you like the podcast, please follow and or subscribe. This way you get a notification every time we post a new episode. All right. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is an environmental attorney, writer, author, and activist who is running for president of the United States. He's also been a very outspoken and controversial opponent of vaccines. And we're going to get into all of this today. Bobby, welcome into the back room. Thank you, Andy. It's very, very good to be with you. So I just I want to say for full disclosures, we know each other. I, I've known your lovely, very talented, very funny wife, Cheryl Hines, for probably about 20 years now, since she was in my late wife's movie, Waitress, fantastic movie. And then obviously over the years, I've gotten to know you. And we're actually kind and of... Then fa- she directed, yeah. and, she, and she directed... And she directed Serious Moonlight. That's right. And we're technically family yeah. because my dog, Willie came from your dog. So I have a, I have a Kennedy, yeah. a Kennedy dog. My dog's a Kennedy. <laughs> I have a Kennedy dog. I don't remember the dog's name though. I know you've had a lot of dogs, what? so maybe you don't remember either. A lot of dogs. I don't know. I'm not sure what kind of dog do you have? <laughs> I forgot. He's very small and he's very anxious. So, <laughs> but he's I think not. That was a hybrid. Yeah, it was, I think I had a, I had a cocker spaniel that I used with my hawks for hunting, and that, I think something got at that cocker. It was a, it was a bitch cocker, and she was a little bit promiscuous, and so I don't know what kind of mix that uh, your puppy is. But I know she had a, she had a, she whelped once with with somebody we didn't we didn't recognize. Yeah, I guess we heard at the time that the uh, the dog had not fully weaned the puppies. I think that was the story I remember. So Willie and the other puppies, I think, were sort of rejected by your dog after like six weeks or something like that. So which may may have caused some dysfunction. I don't know, but he's a, he's a little anxious, but he's a good pup. He's still around. He's nine years old. So there's a lot to talk about, Bobby. You're running for president. You were also a controversial figure. Uh, and I do want to get into all of that, but I, if I, I want to peel back the onion just a little bit back to childhood because, you know, you've been through trauma and tragedy as a kid. As you know, I've, I've been raising a daughter since she's two years old after her mother was murdered. And, uh, you know, kids just don't usually go through that kind of thing. You, there are kids who lose a parent, but they typically don't lose a parent under such violent, tragic, sudden terms. Now, I know how that's impacted my daughter, but I'm, I'm curious, and I think my listeners will be curious to know how you think the loss of your dad has impacted you in the greatest ways, maybe both positively and, and negatively. Uh, I, you know, I feel like I feel like I was, you know, a lot of people lose their dad. My mom used to point this out uh, in Harlem and Watts, and, you know, there's, there's, there are tens of thousands of kids who lose their parents to violence. And that, you know, we had in my family the advantage of having a tremendous amount of resources. And by resources, I don't mean money, but I mean, you know, large family, loving family with a lot of people around to comfort us and 
uh, and sort of explain our father's role in the world. And, you know, we saw that too. I was 14 when my dad was killed. And, uh, and then I also had the experience of people, of having a couple of people in my life who really loved me when I was young. And I think that's the most important thing for a child. I felt from two people in my life, one of them, a woman who worked for my family for 50 years, and then another one, a guy called Lemoyne Billings, who was a surrogate father to me. He'd been President Kennedy's best friend. He was his roommate at Choate. And uh, he experienced uh, my Uncle Jack's death with the same uh, trauma and agony as my father did. And so my father and he became very, very close after Jack was killed. And then when my father was killed, he became kind of a surrogate father to me. The summer after my father was killed in June, that summer I spent the entire summer traveling around Africa with Lem, with Lem Billings. My mother kind of got the older kids out of the house. There was 11 of us, uh, 10 of us, and then she had another baby in, uh, in December. And but she she needed to kind of get a hold on her life and you know get the little kids organized. So all the older kids were sent away to different. You know, my brother David went to work for Cesar Chavez in in Delano in California. And my brother Joe went to be a guide on Mount Rainier with Jim Whitaker, who was very close to my dad. My sister Kathleen went to work with the Inuit Indians and. In, Alaska, and I was sent to Africa, which I'd had an obsession with from when I was little, with Lem Billings. And he then became kind of my, you know, like I said, a sorry a father to me, and he really showered me with love. And, uh, and I think that created in me some inner reservoirs of strength. And I think to me, that's the most important thing to give to a kid. You know, all your wisdom is, for a lot of kids, they're impervious to it, you know, and all the lessons you learn, they kind of have to learn for themselves. At least that's my experience with my kids and that the one thing they really hear from you loudly and clearly is, I love you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's the only thing I can hear, from you know, but it's the most important thing you can tell them. And I had that in my life. And so I think the, you know, the traumas that are associated with losing a parent were much less for me because I had those, you know, those kind of other resources. My, you know, my wife, Ari, took her own life in 2012. And uh, I had six kids at that time. So they lived through kind of the same trauma that your wife live through, you know, losing a parent. And they were at risk, uh, clearly. But all of those kids have grown up to be healthy kids with uh, great attitudes toward life and a lot of resilience. And they all uh, have interesting lives and wonderful friends and good relationships. And I think, again, that's, you know, part of that is Cheryl, who showered them with love and you know part of it some part of it was you know my own experience of of having lived through something similar and being able to be there for them i'm glad you said that about cheryl because uh to me she's one of the kindest most generous people i've ever met she literally is the best human being i've ever met yeah. in my life 
I've never heard her say a single sentence that was even in the least bit dishonest or self-promoting or pretentious or, you know, everything she says is interesting and most of it is funny. Yeah. But it's always, it's always important. You know, she doesn't say, you know, all of her observations are worth listening to. She has so much wisdom. The word wisdom means a knowledge of God's will. And she has this sense that she just knows what to do in every instance. She knows the right thing to say in every instance. She has this instinct about uh, right and wrong. And she just would never do anything wrong. She's one of these people. She's the opposite. Because, you know, I grew up, I was just a bundle of appetites. And I was, you know, feeding them that whatever the cause was to, you know, myself and other people. Life she's is meant like, to be enjoyed, little, right? Isn't that what they say? Well, I enjoy a large, large part of it, more than my share. You know, I, I made a documentary about Adrian, and one of the most poignant scenes in the film is when I'm sitting with Sophie, and she was about 16 at the time. And I said, if mom were here today, what, what would you do? And she said, oh, I would probably just go for a walk. And I'd say, what would you say to her? And she just broke down. She broke down, and when she was finished crying, she'd say, I would say whatever I wanted because I could. And so I want to ask you, having lived most of your life without your father, if your father was here today, and your father was an amazing, inspirational, beloved human being, <clears throat> and a lot of people often think about if he had become president in 68 uh, instead of Nixon, what the world would be like today. If he was here today... What would you want to say to him? What would you want to lean on him for? Well, I think I'd have the same reaction as your daughter did. I just, you know, I would, I, there, there's no simple thing I need to need. I need to know from my father at this point in my life. I think, you know, I've learned, you know, I'm 69 years old. If I haven't learned what I'm supposed to learn in my life at this point, then I'm probably unteachable. Uh, so... But, uh, you know, do you I, really think I, that? I, I mean, do you think we time. stop learning at a certain age or stop growing? No, but I, you know, I had to le start learning. I, I had to start, uh, you know, I was in a, such a destructive uh, trajectory you know, through addiction and stuff when I was in my 20s that if I didn't learn, I had to kind of completely change the person I was because that person was going to destroy himself. And so I had to go through a, a period of, you know, of massive spiritual realignment. And if I hadn't done that, I would be dead. So um, that has kind of been the guidepost for the rest of my life. And that journey has, as you know, I, I would not have lasted. Let me put it this way: I wouldn't have lasted to sixty-nine years old if I kept on that trajectory. I know. I, me, I, I know. Uh, I read your. I read your book. Was, you know, I'm still growing today and learning. You know, I learn every day. Um, and old age for me is actually really good. You know, because uh, it's allowed me to sort of do some spiritual things that I simply couldn't do before, not just the way that I was constructed. And it's allowed me to be more quiet with myself and more peaceful. And so it's good. And there's a lot about it that's 
understand that sucks, but you know, it's part of the, it's part of a journey that we're supposed to be on. And it's, you know, like one of the oldest males in my family in many generations, you know, most of my family has, the males have died very young. I want to ask you how much you watch or pay attention or think about the British royal family, because the truth is, to most Americans, the Kennedys have been our version of the, the royal family, not necessarily pound for pound in the same way, but just uh, a, a dynastic presence in our political and social culture over the years. And you see what's happening with the royal family now, and there's a lot of dysfunction and internal strife and infighting. And look, I, I'm not judgy because I come from one of the most dysfunctional families on the planet. But growing up and at your age now, do you understand when people say, you know, the Kennedys are like the America's royal family? Do you agree with that? Is that something that you can appreciate in some way? Well, I don't really follow the British royal family much. I think they have a hard time you know, I had kind of compared to them, I had, you know, a normal life. I was, you know, I spent a lot of times, you know, with normal, I spent most of my life with what most Americans would consider normal people. I mean, I hopped freight trains across the country when I was 15 years old and was living in the obo jungles. And, you know, then I, and I spent two years living in in Alabama with, you know, people who would call themselves severe rednecks. And, you know, I, I've just spent all my life, I have not been, I haven't lived a sheltered life. I've worked in normal jobs. I've worked my whole life. And I've never, you know, I don't go, until recently, I've never had security, you know, and I've never, in my, you know, I, I just don't live a careful or, elite kind of life. I mean, I've, I deal, clearly I've accessed the people at every level of society, including the upper echelons, but I, you know, I've spent my career working with commercial fishermen and hunters and fishermen. And, you know, so my, my life is not as regimented and as isolated as I think they are. I would find that intolerable to live the way that they live. You know, I really would find it intolerable. I know I, you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy for them because they're just regular human beings in this very odd, you know, unnatural bubble, mm -hmm. and uh, and they have to behave themselves all the time. And if they don't, it's headlines, and that would be excruciating to me. I mean, I I've made enough bad headlines of my behavior, but. A lot of headlines, of course, for stuff that I didn't do. But, you know, I, you know, I, if somebody was following me around all the time, it would be a nightmare. And that's what they are. They cannot oh, do go tell. anywhere. <laughs> but, stuff you want to tell yeah. that we don't know yet? About me? No. I, I said the other day, I have a lot of skeletons in my closet. I, I, they're in the closet because I want them at the closet. I don't want them to get out. <laughs> Well, that's usually where skeletons belong. Who were your early inspirations coming up? My early inspirations were, I mean, I came from a very Catholic family. My, you know, my hero was St. Francis of Assisi, St. Anthony, you know, I, I, you know, we were raised with my father 
uh, taught us, you know, was a great military historian, and he told us the stories of the great battles that changed history every night at dinner. Oh, you know, uh, my heroes were Alexander the Great and Richard the Lionhearted and, you know, Saladin and uh, Ponce de Leon, you know, even, even the, you know, the conquistadors who were reprehensible human beings were people like, uh, and then Alexander Humboldt, you know, I love Darwin, I love the biologist, uh, uh, Richard Speak, uh, you know, the African explorers, that's who I kind of grew up idolizing. And a lot of them nowadays are not politically correct. But, you know, I grew up with, with kind of a Victorian sense of, you know, of, uh, of uh, you know, this country and of history and all of that, reading Tennyson and Kipling and, uh, you know, the, the, the ballads, you know, the, uh, you know, and the, the, po the poet, the heroic ballads mm -hmm. of that generation. And that's kind of, you know, that was, uh, those were the kind of fixtures, the moral fixtures in my life. And what about your dad? I mean, you were 14 when he died. Uh, is your dad someone that back then you looked at and said, wow, I, I see what everybody else sees? Or were you just like the typical 14-year-old who was like, didn't want to be in the same room with your dad? No, no. I hero worship my dad. Why? Why did you see him that way? Oh, you know, he could do everything. He was good at everything. Mm -hmm. As, uh, and he was changing the world. I mean, we were we were in the middle of it the civil rights battles of, uh, you know, all of these, you know, fighting the mafia. We hadn't, you know, we were, we had, you know, we had Teamster trucks. I mean, driving by our house every day and revving their engines in a menacing way. And my father, we'd be playing football on the, on the football field in the yard. And there'd be teamsters, you know, trucks with uh, with teamsters and um, rounding the yard, gunning their engines, making the you know the, the smoke fly from there. And my father would just say, ignore them, you know, don't take any notice of them, because mm -hmm. that's going to give you pleasure, and so or give them pleasure. And, and so you know, we were we were in the middle of that our whole lives. We knew that he was involved in these very heroic battles to stop war, to stop the cities from burning, to make America a fair place for, for Blacks and Hispanics and Indians and farm workers. So, I, you know, what, what was not to admire about that? And then he was an amazing athlete. You know, he could do any kind of, he was a very, very graceful athlete and which was one of the first things you noticed about him mm. and that everybody knew. And, you know, we played sports all the time. I've heard so many times and had so many conversations over the years with so many people about, you know, all the what ifs. What if your uncle had been alive and what if your dad had been alive? I'm interested to know, what do you think would have been the fundamental differences in America and in the world had both of those incredible people still been with us? I think we wouldn't have gone down this path of, you know, becoming a warfare state, you know, with our, you know, our biggest uh, economic driver is weapons and war. 
and you know that's made us an imperial state abroad. It's destroyed our you know moral authority across the world. It has hollowed out the middle class. It's turned us into a surveillance state at home. And you know the, the function of the intelligence agencies and the Pentagon is to provide the military industrial complex with this constant pipeline of new wars. And uh, and it's destroyed our country. Oh, and it's it's all tied into the COVID response, which was a military response. You know, HHS was not running Operation Warp Speed. Operation Warp Speed was run by the NSA, which is an intelligence agency, and the Pentagon. Why in the world were they running, you know, a public health crisis? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to I want to get to this stuff in a second. So this is a good segue into politics. So you've recently entered the race for the presidency in 2024. You have very judiciously avoided politics your whole life in terms of being a candidate. I know you flirted with a couple of situations with the Senate and attorney general, but you've chosen to stay out of politics. Why enter politics now? I'm watching my country fall apart. I'm watching a country that I'm urging that, you know, I... I want my children to, to grow up in a country that they can be proud of. And I, you know, the, the world's exemplary democracy. And, and there is systemic corruption now in our country that comes from this, you know, this merger of state, this corrupt merger of state corporate power uh, that is undermining all the values of our country and undermining what we're doing. Abroad. And I think a lot of people, for the most part, would agree with a lot of that, there are a lot of people that look at income inequality that exists in our country and civil rights, voting rights, things that we're still struggling with, racism, institutional racism, anti-Semitism, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, corporate America not paying their fair share of taxes, all that stuff. Give me a sense of the first 100 days of the Bobby Kennedy presidency. How do you tackle that? What would be your biggest two or three agenda items. My administration is going to be, you know, one of the key themes is scaling back our military commitments abroad. We have 800 bases abroad. We have, you know, in, in other countries and we're borrowing $6 billion a day, mainly from the Chinese to keep them functioning. We spent $8 trillion on wars since the Iraq war with nothing to show for it. We spent $16 trillion on the, uh, but with on the lockdowns with zero to show, right? And that's twenty-four trillion dollars that is being, you know, paid for by the middle class in this country, not by the rich, but by the middle class. And it has gutted them. And I, you know, the first thing we need to do is to, you know, to to systematically to scale back our military commitments abroad. We need to, you know, turn our country into a fortress where we protect our borders, we make ourselves too expensive to conquer. And then we focus on strengthening our economy, which is the true source of natural of national strength. What's next? Uh, then I fix the regulatory agencies. Now, and I can go through each regulator if you want until I tell you what I do. But, you know, the regulatory agencies are all captured by polluting industries and by pharmaceutical companies and, you know, by the real, the DOT is a wholly owned subsidiary of the railroads. Uh, USDA, the Department of Agriculture is a, you know, a sock puppet for Smithfield Boots and Tyson's and Pilgrim's and Cargill and Monsanto. 
the EPA is just an extension of, uh, of you know, Peabody Coal and Exxon and the Coke Energy and all the big, you know, oil pesticides, Monsanto. When we sued Monsanto, we found emails that showed that the head of the pesticide division, like a decade, this guy called Jess Rowland, was secretly working for Monsanto. Oh, and that's unfortunately true throughout these agencies. The top guys in these agencies, are, in many cases, are not working for the public interest. They're working for, you know, the mercantile interests of these big corporations. A lot of people think that when someone runs for president, they know that they're not going to win, but they gather enough support that's going to give them a seat at the table. Is that something that plays into this? Are you looking uh, in 24 or 23 or at some point to be sitting at the table saying, I have this base of support that's following me and therefore my issues, my concerns, I, w I want to see the Biden administration act more on some of these things. Is it currency that's motivating a lot of this? No, I'm in this, uh, this race to win. I want to save the country. Would you consider being an independent in 24? I'm, I'm, I'm counting on winning. No, that's what you should be saying. So you're saying, you're saying the right answers. So let's shift. You're, you're implying that I'm being insincere. No, no, no. It, it, there's a reality when certain people run for office, it could be motivated by a lot of different things. Assuming you're going to win is what should be the answer. So uh, I, 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 that's my motivation. If it weren't my motivation, Cheryl would not be supporting me. Uh, anyway, I mean, you can look at what the polls say right now, and they're, they're pretty encouraging. I can't imagine anyone throwing their hat into the ring unless they truly wanted to be president and expected to be president, because it's not the greatest uh, process in the world to be involved in. So I want to shift gears. Exactly. <laughs> well, I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the controversies. But first, what I want to do is I want to go back in time and read something that I put together about your career, because I think it's important that people understand all of Bobby Kennedy. And so just bear with me for a second. You are a champion of environmental issues. Your positions on clean energy and land conservation are aligned 100% with the Democratic Party. <clears throat> you were once considered to head the EPA. As an environmental attorney, you've supported and represented the NAACP, the poor, minorities, indigenous tribes in Chile, Canada, Latin America, Indian tribes in British Columbia, fishermen in Mexico and Puerto Rico. You've lobbied Fidel Castro to scrap plans to build a nuclear power plant. You've battled against pollution by factory farms. You've advocated for, for a global transition away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy. You've taken on Exxon and Mobil. You've helped lead the battle against fracking in New York State. You were active in Alaska in the fight to save the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. From drilling, you were arrested with your son Connor while protesting the Keystone XL pipeline. You and Waterkeeper participated in protests to block the extension of the Dakota Access Pipeline across the Sioux Indian Standing Rock Reservation's water supply. You've claimed the oil industry is able to remain competitive against renewables and electric cars through massive direct and indirect government subsidies and interventions. And you've been lauded for your work in helping clean and restore the Hudson River. And the list actually could go on. There's a lot of really amazing shit you've done in the last 40 years. But what do you say to the people who say you're a conspiracy theorist, you're spreading misinformation, that's not just radical and extremist. 
but dangerous. And there are some people that think, quite frankly, a, a bit loony and crazy. What do you say to those people who look at the first part of your career and then are now judging you on all of this other stuff? I said, tell me where I got it wrong. I, I'm doing the same thing with the pharmaceutical industry I've been doing my whole life, which is fighting corporate corruption, corporate capture. You know, do you think they, do you think there was non-corruption uh, that underlies the opioid crisis? No, FDA, uh, FDA is a captive agency. Half of its budget comes from pharma. And they green-lighted opioids. They told us they were safe and effective, safe, safe, and effective. And there's now 60,000 American children who are dying every year. That's the same amount of people, 57,000, who were killed in 20 years during the Vietnam War and were killing that many every year because of pharmaceutical industry capture of our agencies. You know, look at Vioxx, which killed between 120,000 and 500,000 Americans because of corporate capture of those agencies. Oh, you know, I don't understand what the difference is between what I'm doing now and what I've done my entire life, which is to fight, you know, agency corruption captured by those agencies and corporate corruption that is hurting Americans' health and well-being. And some of that is totally legitimate, but I think what people are having a harder time with today is more concentrated in the area of COVID and the vaccines and uh, stuff that, quite honestly, between the scientific community, the medical community, doctors and domestic and world health organizations, things that have been debunked and discredited many times. You know, you're making these very broad statements about something I've said that's been debunked. Show me an instance that I said something that was incorrect. Show me one instance. You're repeating propaganda tropes that you're reading in the media that are generated ultimately by the pharmaceutical industry and by a medical cartel that's corrupted. What I do is I read science. There's a huge difference between the scientific establishment and established science. The agencies that you're quoting are the same agencies that gave us Vioxx and the opioid crisis. And, if, and they told us they were safe and effective. Look, show me one statement that I have ever made that you consider factually erroneous. Tell me, show me one. Do you think the vaccines helped? Do you think the vaccines saved lives? Do you think the vaccines prevented additional here's, hospitalizations? Here's what, we, here's what we know about the vaccines. The vaccines, first of all, they were between 12 and 15 million people now who are 7% of the population, 7% of the people were infected, who were sick enough from the vaccine that they had to seek medical intervention. Now that's according to the CDC's data, the VSAFE data, and it's supported also by the Rasmussen poll. We've never had a medication that's sick in 7% of the people who take it particularly of medication that you're giving the people who are perfectly healthy. You're not giving this to sick people. You're giving it to healthy people who don't have any problems. And in a lot of cases, you're giving it to children who have zero risk from COVID. That makes, and 7% of them are going to have to seek medical health. And there's been more deaths and more injuries reported from these vaccines than all the vaccines combined. 
in the last 36 years. Uh, the question is, did they avert deaths? I don't think so. I think they, some people may have been benefited for a short time. Here's what, we, and here's what I would say the most important thing is, Andy. Look at the Pfizer data. Pfizer had to give its, you know, Pfizer got a, actually got one of its vaccines approved. So it wasn't emergency use. It never made that vaccine available in this country because once it gets approved, they can get sued. So Pfizer had to submit six months of data. Here's what the data showed. In the vaccine, there were 22,000 people who got the vaccine. In that group, one person died from COVID over the six-month period. There were 22,000 people who got the placebo. And in that group, two people died from COVID over six months. That allowed Pfizer to tell the public and the regulatory agencies to tell the public that that vaccine was 100% effective. Because the number two is 100% greater than the number one. What they really should have been telling the public is we have to give 22,000 vaccines to save one life from COVID. Now, if you're going to give 22,000 vaccines to save, to avert one COVID death, you better make sure those vaccines aren't killing anybody. How do you do that? You look at all-cause mortality over that six months. Here's what that data show, and you can go to that data uh, graph, which is called S5 in Pfizer's submissions to FDA. And what that graph and the, uh, and the other data in that section show is that there were 17 deaths, all causes in the, in the placebo group, and there were 21 deaths in the vaccine group. So, so there's 22 more, you, what that shows, if you take the vaccine, you're 21% more likely to die over the next six months than if you don't. Now, what were they dying of? Well, we know that too, because there were five cardiac arrests, fatal cardiac arrests in the vaccine group and only one in the placebo group. What that means, if you take that vaccine, you are 500% more likely to die of a cardiac arrest over the next five, six months than if you don't. And it also means that for every life from COVID that they're saving, they're killing four people from a cardiac arrest. I tried to find the statistics about deaths from COVID vaccines, and I just couldn't. There are things that have been debunked, claims that have been debunked. Uh, show me where they've been debunked. Well, I mean, show me where the, 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 doing the, is. the Commonwealth Fund, for example. Vaccines prevented 18 plus million additional hospitalizations and 3.2 million additional deaths. Uh, without the vaccine, there would have been nearly 120 million more COVID-19. I mean, I don't. My goal was not to litigate this subject, as you're a litigator and I'm not. But let's litigate it because you're made. Let's. No, no. I'm just sort of presenting what the the consensus in in the country and in the, the world is. No. The Commonwealth Fund is not a consensus. I'm telling you, CDC data. If I get it wrong, tell me. The Commonwealth Fund is not a scientific study. It's a modeling prediction. And with all modeling predictions, it's garbage in, garbage out. 
But what they're saying, they start with a bunch of assumptions that the vaccine is going to save so many people. Then they look at the population wide and they said, oh, this is how many people that it saved. Well, answer me this then. How come we get the highest body count from COVID on earth in our country? We were one of the most vaccinated countries in the world. And we had a death rate in our country. We had, we have 4.2% of the global population. And we had 16% of the COVID deaths. How is that a good record, Andy? How is that a good record? Can I'm just saying that whether you look at the CDC or you look at the, the scientific industry and community overall, the medical profession, well, well, Andy, the consensus Andy, is that the vaccines work and there's no proof, no empirical evidence that there was any kind of uh, meaningful deaths solely related to the vaccine. Do people die? I mean, I've seen instances where people have died after taking a vaccine, but they may have also been in the hospital for four months with leukemia and, and pneumonia and other things. And so the general consensus just doesn't support this stuff. I think that's what people are concerned about. Well, here's the thing, Andy. Andy, when you use the word consensus, you can't use science in the same sense. Because science is not done by consensus. That's a vote. You're talking, the, the, what you're doing is a, a logical fallacy. It's an appeal to authority. You're saying because CDC says it's so, and it must be so, or WHO says it's so. Those are captive agencies. Those are the agencies that created this product, made everybody use it. Of course, they're going to defend it. Let's look at real science. Well, what, what about the tail? And what about the virus that just died out the minute everybody started taking vaccines? Like, there's a reality to out, the end out. of, the, of, of the, the pandemic. It was. It died out in Haiti. It died out in Nigeria long before it died out here. And they didn't have vaccines. They had a 1%, 1.5% vaccine rate. Oh, and they had, you know, Haiti had a death rate of 15 people per, per million population. Our death rate was 3,000 per million population. Uh, Nigeria's was 14 people per million population. Ours was 200 times that. The unvaccinated countries did much better than the vaccinated countries. Just, you know, if you open your eyes and say to yourself, why is it that the U.S. that did all of these precautions had by far the highest death rate on Earth? Now, here's a scientific study for you. The case, Case Western, the Cleveland Clinic, mainstream medicine, looked at 56,000 of its employees. And what they found was that, yes, the vaccine offers some help during the first two months. It offers some protection against COVID. That protection quickly declines. I, seven months, it's gone into negative efficacy. That means that you are more likely to get COVID if you've had the vaccine after seven months and if you never had the vaccine. And that's one of the reasons why the, probably, almost certainly, why the the pandemic lasting longer, it's, it, it keeps going on and on because what we're doing is we're vaccinating and you actually get more likely to get sick. But, but isn't it just a, a virus now like the flu where it's here, it's here to stay. We need a vaccine every year to prevent it. Again, the data, the scientific studies in general just don't the support the these claims. No. You are, again, you're repeating propaganda tropes from the industry. Show me a study. 
I will show you studies all day that say exactly the opposite. And I'm citing them to you right now. You can't, it is a logical fallacy to continue to say, oh, because these guys who are totally corrupt are saying it's true and we have to believe it. And, you know, and as I told you, the, the, the virus died much quicker in the countries that didn't vaccinate. Look at all of Africa. They had a death rate across Africa about averaging about 350 per, per million population. Ours was 10 times that. And those countries were largely unvaccinated. So the vaccine, no, you can't argue that it had any visible results. And if you look at the Johns Hopkins data, I just urge it. Look, first of all, we put out a, a book called Diet Suddenly, and it's a compilation of about, I think, over a thousand child athletes or athletes who died on the field of cardiac arrest. This is happening every day in this country. There used to be, over the past 30 years, the average number of deaths of people dying on an athletic field was 29 per year. We are now getting between 29 and 90 a month. And, you know, it's clearly the vaccine. And we're killing children. COVID didn't kill children. It killed people in their last year of life. But the vaccine kills young people and particularly young, healthy athletes. And, you know, if you go look at my book, which I'll send you, you'll see, you know, it's all newspaper. Well, I'm just pointing out all the people and entities in the country who don't believe what you're saying is true. Let me ask you something. If FDA made a statement today that said that opioids are safe and effective, would you believe that? No. And this is the thing, Bobby. I'm not saying everything that you believe... You know, I, quoting people, the, that quoting people and in institutions is not a rational argument. Where it becomes a concern to people is that, and I'm not going to compare you to Trump, but I'm going to cite Trump. When Trump says things like, don't believe all these people, only believe me, people step back and go, wait a second, that just doesn't sound here's right. What, here's what I say. I tell people, do not believe me. You shouldn't believe me. You shouldn't believe CDC. You should believe the science. That's what I always say. But the CDC is the science. The scientists are the science. The medical profession. People went to medical school. They're the science. The COVID vaccines did stop this thing in its tracks for the most part, made it much more minimal in terms of its impact. You take vaccines, you get COVID. It's like getting a cold or the flu, you know, save lives. You You spend five minutes on Google and this stuff is refuted. It's refuted all over the place, Bobby. Uh, you're spending, that's where you're getting your information. Well, you're getting okay. your information from right. people who are biased. So let's shift to the autism subject, because that's something that's obviously you've been very passionate as well about for many, uh, many years. Wait a minute. Are we going to play the same game with autism where you're going to tell me CDC, you know, and these are the same agencies that told us cigarettes were okay for us, that told us thalidomide was okay for us, you know, that, that they say that autism is not associated. No, no, with I'm, what I'm trying to drive at is that the medical profession just as, hasn't created the connective tissue to vaccines and autism the way that you have. Listen, I wrote a book that summarized all the science that we could find on PubMed. 14 references, Andy, 400 studies all saying yes. Autism and vaccines are linked. They have 14 studies which they contrived 
None of those, they're all epidemiological studies, which are very easy to fix. And none of those studies do what you would want to do if you actually wanted to know the answer, which is to compare autism rates in a vaccinated group to autism rates in an unvaccinated group. That study they will never do. And they did it once in the vaccine safety data lake. Thomas Verstraten, who is a Belgian researcher who was brought in by CDC, to study the vaccine safety data lake in 1999, which is the biggest compilation of vaccines and medical records in this country. And they worked on it for six months. And they came back and said the first data run they did, they looked at the hepatitis B vaccine to children given during the first 30 days of life. They compared it to children who didn't receive the vaccine or who received it after 30 days. And they said there's an 1135% elevated risk of autism in children who got that vaccine. Then in 2004, they studied the MMR vaccine specifically, and the chief scientist, the senior vaccine safety scientist at CDC, uh, uh, said that his boss, Frank DiStefano, and he's still at CDC, his boss, Frank DiStefano, whose name appears on the study, when they found out that black children who received that vaccine before 36 months had a 350% greater chance of getting an autism diagnosis than those who received it later, Hank Stefano called all five CDC scientists into a conference room and had them destroy the data, the race-related data, the data on the black children to hide the effect this is the agency that you are citing, and you can go and look up what I'm telling you right now, and you'll see that it's true, and you are citing this agency, which is utterly corrupt. But you're telling, me, you're telling me to look up but before you knocked me for looking at, at Google. My point is that I know you're very passionate about this stuff. Uh, I'm and, not, and I think you look up facts, not somebody's opinion. Well, but that's, the position, that's the position I'm taking in terms of representing what a lot of people felt, that when they researched this, that the facts don't support this. This has been a but subject a, a, for decades, uh, and no, there's no connectivity, scientific medical data that supports that kind of connectivity, that alarming connectivity, or the rise in autism to vaccines. You know, I'm yeah, not a doctor. I, 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 you know, but I, you know, but I listen to what doctors say for the most part. Yeah, right. But they don't. The doctors, if they're not looking at the scientific, if they're quoting CDC, and that's where they're getting their opinions, and it's irrelevant. Well, and but it, it, one of the issues that I have is that as a guy Andy, who has spent so Andy. much time championing the environment and citing science to support the positions you've taken. It's hard to make that distinction. You know, science over here is great, but science over here is not. You're, you're, you know what? You're conflating things. I, I look at science when I, you know, when I do environmental issues, I look at science when I do pharmaceutical issues. I don't listen to regulators. EPA is corrupt. EDC is corrupt. FDA is corrupt. Saying there's a, you know, there was a scientific consensus that the, that the sun rotated around the earth. When Copernicus came along. Look, we are not going to agree on this. And certainly I, I appreciate your, your, your defending your positions. I'm just here to say, look, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a litigator. But I do spend a lot of time reading. And I have not seen anything that supports this. But in our final minutes, let's shift. Tell me what the next few months of your campaign looks like. 
you know, I'm going to be spending a lot of time in the primary, say, or early primaries. Base. What is your, what, where are you focusing the most right now? I'm in New Hampshire. I'm going to be going to South Carolina next week. Well, Bobby, I know you got to run. I really appreciate you coming on and good luck to you in your campaign. Thank you, Andy. Enjoy talking to you. Take care. That's episode 68. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. And it's also helpful for us and for you if you subscribe or follow. This way you make sure you get notifications every time we post a new episode. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Bobby Kennedy Jr. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. Have a great week.